Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. Our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We bring you weekly topics and thought-provoking guests to get you to stop, reflect and think about what it means to be a leader in a modern world. Our aim is to help you become the leader you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Please enjoy the show. What I loved is that you started with freeing up the person. You didn't use these words, but you almost said emotionally. So removing stress for them, that they feel like they're in a psychologically safe environment, that their boss has got their back, so to speak, that if they follow this approach, that it's well known that, yep, I'm okay here and I can get on with things with that comfort. I really like that one. The next one, freeing up the flow. So talking about the interruptions here. So you're, you're in the story that you tell in the book, you were in your office and you were working and the person came and knocked on your door and people talk very much about an open door policy. And you want that because you don't want people to feel like their ma- manager or leader is unapproachable or et cetera, et cetera. But there is the element that you might have been deep in an element of work and now you've had to stop and pause and, and work on this one. Um, the, and that then impacts the ability. I like what you said about flow. This is very powerful, but it impacts the ability for the business to scale because you're in the point where the person is stuck. If they feel like they have to check everything with you, they get stuck. You become a choke point. You get stuck because you spend hours of your day solving other people's problems and they're hours that you will never get back. You'll never be able to uh, reuse those uh, again. So that impacts the ability to scale. And, and we'll get back to uh, that in a moment because I want to talk about the patterns that, that emerge there. The other one I want to ask you about is the stress of the manager themselves. And about the fact that, I'm going to say this openly, decision-making is exhausting. You get a certain amount of energy each day as you wake up. And the moment you start making decisions, it drains your energy over time. And if you're making every decision for every member of your team, that's all on you. And you're going to go home at the end of the day completely exhausted. What, what are your thoughts on energy and stress associated with it. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And I think I do actually refer to decision fatigue in the book. Um, I don't over, overly dwell on it, but it, I, I do re- recognize when, we are con- when we're, we're constantly making decisions throughout the day, and they can be little decisions. It's not like they're mad big decisions around whether we're going to invest 10 million into something. 
but they're little decisions and they are constantly every single time we have to make a decision it builds up it builds up it builds up we get you know kind of takes a little bit more out of us and you know for some managers by the time they've gotten to the to the office now obviously at the moment COVID people aren't going to the office quite so much but you know they, they could have made 20 different little decisions what am I having for breakfast what am I having I'm having tea or coffee or what am I having for what I'm going to wear what am I going to you know are we going this route are we going that route so many little decisions that if you can kind of reduce them down um it it it, uh, it, it is helpful um, and we often don't recognize that we're actually just worn out with it um, but you know, in working with managers, they 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 are exhausted, and um, they're 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 you can see they're kind of wound up on that stress level. They, you know, they're stressed, um, kind of because they don't they can't see a way out of it. It's it's almost like they're stuck. They're kind of like they don't actually know. Is there a way out of this? Is there? How do I change this dynamic? And it is a dynamic within the team. And again, I I talk about the book in the book around sometimes the managers or the leader is actually contributing to the dynamic they don't recognize that they're contributing to the dynamic they don't mean to be contributing to the dynamic if you ask them they genuinely hand on heart will say i have no intention that this dynamic exists and yet they're stuck in the middle of it and they don't they don't know how it happened and they don't know how to change the conversations so that the habit, the, the dynamic changes and they get much better outcomes. Um, and, and, you know, they often are, the, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, I'd be talking to them and they'll just rant. They just want to rant because it's a release valve. The, the purpose of the ranting is to, to release that tension. Um, but long term, you know, an awful lot of managers would go, if I know how to change this dynamic in tomorrow, I drop everything to get it done because it is exhausting for them. Yeah, very good. i share a couple of personal things with you at this point. Here's an experiment that my wife and I started exactly seven days ago. We were reflecting on it um, at lunch earlier today. We've decided to do alternate decision-making days in our house. And this relates to everything from what are we doing today, what are we having for dinner, you name it. Uh, And we had gotten into a pattern where we're both obviously love each other, deeply care for each other, want to please each other, all of these things. And we'd gotten into this pattern of, oh, what do you want for dinner? Oh, it's up to you. No, it's up to you. Oh, it's up to you. No, it's up to you. It's up to you. And before you know it, an hour has gone and we still haven't decided what we're going to have for dinner tonight, right? And so we just made a rule one week ago. So we're one week into this experiment. So far, really good. We take alternate days. So today was my day. Uh, I was in charge of decision making today. Tomorrow is her day and it just uh, flips uh, from, and so far, it's really good. You don't, you just make a decision. You go, okay, I really feel like chicken for dinner tonight. And off you go. And the other person goes, oh yeah, chicken sounds good. Off we go. Right, so uh, it's, it's been really uh, interesting so far. And it, could I ask there, do you, have you, do you feel less stressed? Like do you have more energy as a result of that? Yeah, do you have more like yeah. it's more time because it's like, right, I've just made the decision. So I don't have to have another 59 minutes conversation about that. Um, and and the, so the time and the energy, yeah. yeah it's already, it's well already working seven, seven yeah. days in. And the other one to share with you is I've, I have to stick up my hand and say, I've fallen into this manager's dilemma trap as well. Um, there was a, a role in particular that I'm, 
I'm thinking of uh, working in Auckland at the time in New Zealand where I got to the situation where the answer to any question in the team was ask Mick. And what I was doing, I was instantly answering their question. So people would come to me with all kinds of decisions throughout the day and I would just instantly answer the question. And what that set was just a pattern of behavior that was just repeated. It was in a cycle. And I'll share with you that meant that when I was, when, it, when the time came for me to leave that role, it was very difficult for me to leave. I actually moved back to Sydney. And one month later, I was on a plane back to Auckland because I hadn't developed a team that were in any way independent. They were dependent on me for, for most things. It's a little bit like um, in negotiation world, we talk about a thing called shark bait. And it's this element of you, let's imagine that you're out deep sea fishing and you're, you're out there and you've got a bunch of sharks circling behind the boat and someone thinks, oh, I know, let's, let's feed them some fish and they'll go away. Yes. <laughs> I see where you're going with the story. <laughs> it doesn't happen, right? All it does is it draws more sharks. So, sharks, yeah. so let, yeah. let's get into some practical advice. And I've got to tell you that one of the things I loved about the book for everyone at home, we'll give the details of the book at the end of the show and it'll be in the show notes. And I do recommend that you read this. I love how practical it is because you, you set up a lot of storytelling and give a lot of great case study and material about how this all happens, but then you also give some practical recommendations on how to address this. So let's start with escalation. And if we're going to break this, we need to be able to give some guidance on what is a valid reason for escalation versus a non-valid reason. Talk us through your practical advice for our leaders and managers on this. Yeah, so um, over the course of many years, I throw this question out to people in my workshops and, you know, you get, oh, why do people escalate? Well, they don't know what they're doing or they, because you just answered the question. There's all sorts of reasons. And an awful lot of what managers will come up with, a lot of them fall into what I call needless escalation. They, they're, they're escalating because you're allowing. So exactly like you in your, your own personal example there, they are escalating because if they go to you, they'll get the answer. And that's an awful lot faster for them than it is for them to put in the work to do it themselves. Not particularly good for you, but it's much faster. Uh, notwithstanding that over time, it, it restricts them uh, and it holds them back. Um, so there's an awful lot of reasons why people escalate. And in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, that book about the get the monkey off your back. There's an element of that's that monkey is, you know, it's like, do you should you really be taking this on? Is this really your monkey or is this theirs? And they're just trying to throw it over to you. So um, not that I had that in mind when I wrote the book or when I worked, at, uh, designed the workshop. Um, but it is that kind of, you know. Do I stop, pause? Do I train myself as a manager to pause here and go, is this really your issue or is this something I really need to, to, to deal with? Um, but I suppose part of the premise of the book is that 
um, if somebody is going to escalate something to you, they need to have done a decent amount of work before they can bring it to you. So even the the in what way they escalate. So it is okay if they are stuck. That's not not a problem. But if they are stuck because they've identified a problem and are throwing it over the fence to you and go, you sort it, you take it from here. That is a problem because they should have researched it. They should have kind of figured out what is it, what's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong, what the impact is, all those sorts of things, what they think what they think they should happen. So even when, you know, so permitting that escalation to happen, for want of a better way of phrasing it, um, around the boundaries of escalation, you know, it's, it's around, are they putting in some effort and some attempts to kind of find out what it is and what do they think themselves? Um, so the reasons I, I have identified, so I've, there's a lot of needless reasons why people escalate. Um, the valid reasons that I would say is one, they truly have done everything they can. They've talked to people, they've researched, they know exactly what it is. They can tell you what the impact is and why it's an impact and who's going to be impacted. And that they um, have talked to people, they have tried to resolve it. And, you know, at their level, it's not happening and they need to bring it to you at your level to get it resolved or to see what you can do with it. So that would be a true reason for escalation, a valid reason. Um, I, I think I've already mentioned this, that they are stuck and they, they need a sounding board. That, so again, that they've done an awful lot of the work and they're coming to you and they're stuck um, and that they are able to, um, you know, that they do need your input or they do need some, you know, some sort of, um, I need to talk this out with you type support. So a sounding board or they're stuck. Um, and then the third reason, which is very subtle, is um uh, shall I mention this one? <laughs> the third reason is uh really subtle um is it comes down to actually communications. So sometimes people will bring a problem and what they do is they start off with the problem instead of starting off signaling, I've got it sorted, but I'm letting you know. So they start off with the problem and they bring the problem to somebody called Mick. Who goes? And the answer is, and they're going, well, I hadn't got to tell you what my answer was. And they're going, oh, Mick's just giving me the answer. Grand. So, so what happens is they start off with the problem. They bring it to somebody who's good at problem solving, who goes, I'll, pro- problems, I'll sort that out. I'll solve that problem because that's their natural response to a problem. Um, and the person never gets to the end to say, and I have it sorted. I was just letting you know. Um, so if for so one of the things that I say is look in that case you need to let them know that if they've if they've sorted out a problem they're just letting you know they need to signal that up front instead of starting with the problem to get to the end start with the end in this particular case start with the end and then like if they have any questions they'll ask so those are my three valid reasons for uh, so it's escalation keep or so it's valid escalation because uh, they they really do need you to step in they need a sounding board or they're keeping you in the loop and the way they are doing it is needs to change that was really good advice that was really good advice that one about the keeping in the loop um, and you mentioned this in really nice descriptions in the book that managers are natural problem solvers in some way and the, and you explore different reasons why that may be it could be that their problem solving ability 
brought them to managers' attention, uh, the leadership's attention in the first place and therefore they got promoted because of those problem-solving capabilities, all kinds of reasons why it can be, but managers, successful managers, tend to be natural problem solvers and unless they're very disciplined about some of the things that we're talking about, when you go to someone with a problem, they're going to start uh, inventing solutions in their head, whether you like it or not. That's, that's their natural state, right? So if you're doing an escalation to keep your boss in the loop, I really like this suggestion Ariel's bringing up. Start with, um, hey, boss, or whatever your right term of endearment for your manager is, hey, boss, we've had this issue, I've worked it through, I've got a solution, but I think you should know, right? That would be a great way to start that conversation. And then uh, I just want to summarize for the audience the three amigos of escalation that you talk about. So having valid reasons for escalation and you don't want to discourage when someone needs their help or needs your help, they, they do come to you, right? So in everything that we're talking about here where we're trying to encourage them to be a little bit more self-sustaining, you don't want to have a closed door where people feel like, oh, I can't take this to the, the manager or the boss uh, because they're just going to, you know, bat me away. Having them as a sounding board, number two, and keeping them in the loop as number three. So really great. Now, what, coming back to our scenario that we painted before and people are coming to you with questions that you think do not fit those three categories. How do you get that process going? Of How do you begin that to get them into the situation where they're doing a bit more of their own problem solving? Yeah, um, and this is where it's, it breaks down. It's understanding the breakdown of the different steps to problem solving and then seeing, can I identify, where do I suspect they're getting stuck? At which step are they getting stuck? Um, and I tend to, again, a bit like with the trust where I, from my experience and my observations of people that they fall into two categories, in terms of problem solving, my observations is people to fall into two types of problem solvers, one problem identifiers and problem solvers. So two problem solvers. So there's some people who only fall into the problem identifying they identify the problem and then they go, right, this is somebody else's. I did my job. I identified the problem. Um, and they leave it to other people to, to pick it up and to sort it out. Um, so in my, from my experience of having teased this through with people, there's eight stages of problems, eight steps to problem solving. Um, one is the, the first one is that kind of knowing that there is a problem in the first place. And sometimes we come across people who don't, you know, who don't know and aren't, or aren't interested enough to even kind of get that there might be a problem. Um, but from there, the, there's sort of seven additional steps. Um, so it's around understanding what are, what are the each of the steps and what, what do we mean by each of the steps. Um, I ask people what, how many steps do they think there are to problem solving. In fact, last Friday I was doing a workshop and I said, or a talk, and I said, how many steps do you think they are? And I was getting like three, four, I think five was possibly the big, the, the most. Um, and I would contend that there's eight. There's eight steps to problem solving. And people are really surprised when they hear that. And part of the problem, if we step back to a manager's approach is managers tend to, they are very good problem solvers and they tend to do it very quickly. They tend to have already kind of figured out and started, they've already done a lot of the analysis and gone, oh, okay, this means blah. 
and, and they go through two or three of the steps in one go. So they're not differentiating between the different steps. They've actually started identifying the options and evaluating the options and, you know, kind of discounting some of the options. And when you work with people um, when they're trying to figure something out and you kind of say, well, what other options are there? And, you know, it might be like, well, change my job or something like that. And they, they don't mention it because what they've already done is they've discounted it. They've already evaluated it and discounted it. So they don't even recognize it as an option. So when you force them to kind of go, but it is an option. It is, a, it, it is one option. You might decide to discount it, but it is actually an option. And when we start thinking in those terms, we start breaking them down into more clear, clearer steps. Um, and then as a manager, when we understand the steps, we can start identifying, well, where, so, where might somebody be getting stuck? So somebody might be getting stuck around, well, I guess they're getting stuck because they can identify the problem, but they don't know what to do from there. Or, or in the case of the person who we had that, I had that initial insight into in the whole area, and she was getting stuck around the decision making, around the actual saying, okay, um, I've, I, I know all the options I can, you know, but I, I, I'm, I don't want to be with the one making the decision or I don't have the confidence to make the decision. So that's where she was getting stuck. Um, so it's being able to understand the steps of the problem solving and then observing, reflecting. Uh, the individual and where do we think they're getting stuck? Where do I think that they're having a problem? Where do I, um, uh, you, you know, where do I suspect they're, they're struggling? Um, and then working with them, you know, having that conversation, bringing it to their attention, um, having that conversation around trying to get them to understand the steps and what they need to start showing and demonstrating and how they need to start developing their abilities in each of the stages. Um, and then that they gradually build up that confidence um, and, you know, that, that we get to that point where I was with my, my person where, where I said, go in peace. I couldn't do it any better myself. Um, so depending on the starting point depends on how long it might take to get there. Um, so it can take a while, but, it, you know, it equally could take a few weeks to get them to that point, depending on how many issues you're talking about and the, the, you know, the scale of the issues. And so there's a lot of variables, a lot of variables. There's some clear takeaways there for me. Uh, it's a complex task for sure, but there's some clear takeaways there for me. The first one is about breaking the pattern. So if you are in the instant answer situation, you need to address that pretty quickly. One of the ones I'm going to throw to you for a moment on that area is actually comes from Liz Wiseman and in her book, Multipliers. And she has a thing called the Extreme Question Challenge. And I think this is worth anyone having a go at it at, at any point. And that is as a leader or manager um, on a given 24 hour period, just go into the office one day and do nothing but ask questions. And this is testing a lot of self-awareness and benchmarking a lot of where your team's at. So if the team come to you with a question, just respond with a question. What do you think should happen? What would you like to have happen? What do you think of this, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll be surprised what comes out. First of all, a bit of empowerment. Oh, oh, the boss really cares what I think, first of all. Right? So they, they feel valued. They feel like they matter because someone actually asked their opinion. And secondly, starting to uh, understand what's in their head already. And uh, so, so first of all, break the pattern and don't just give instant answers. Send it back to your team members so that they start their own critical reasoning. Then the next thing that I picked up there, Ariel, is 
And we were talking about this before, that managers are generally natural problem solvers. And talking about your eight steps in the book, which are really powerful, whether people know it or not, if you're a natural problem solver, you're probably doing those things in your head and you're probably doing them very quickly, whether you know it or not. And if someone isn't a natural problem solver, they might need someone to sit down with them and talk through that process. And using Ariel's book would be a wonderful way to do it. But the third part, which I think is really key, is that not everyone's going to be at the same starting point. All right, so take the time to understand of those eight steps, you know, what is the person already good at? Because they're going to get very frustrated with you if you sit there and go, well, you start like this and you, you, you break it down, you know, to be, I don't know if this translates into other, in Australia, we call it suck eggs. Like, so if you start being really basic with them, they might get offended. So understand where they're at and then help them with the bits that they're struggling with in that, in that eight-step process. So, so break the pattern, absolutely. Um, start thinking about how you're going to train your team to be better problem solvers themselves, but make sure you meet them where they're at. Is that a good summary, Ariel? That's an excellent summary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that meeting them where they're at not where you're at, where they're at is hugely important. And I think a lot of times managers struggle with that. Um, A lot of times managers, again, getting back to the ranting, um, and again, also getting back to the expectations piece, people who naturally, and again, this isn't, you know, you can't say this is absolutely 100%, but in general, it would seem the people who get promoted do tend to be problem solvers they tend to they tend to have a I suppose a level of ambition or curiosity or interest in and that that brings them to the attention of and you know they're more likely to get promoted and there's a whole cycle of what goes on there you know and if that's your mindset if you're coming from that space it can be very hard to understand people who aren't coming from that space you know, and not, and not everybody comes from that space. So again, it's the, the expectations of the manager is like, well, why wouldn't you just want to do it right? Or why wouldn't you just figure it out yourself? Or why wouldn't you just want to kind of get on with it and put your best foot forward? You know, there's a lot of people are going, do you know what? I want to come in. I want to do, do a decent job, a decent day's work for a decent pay. And then my life is outside of this. This is an enabler of my life. It's not the end be all and end all of my life. Um, and that's their perspective, you know, and the, the, the sort of managers really struggle with understanding. Not everybody has that same mindset, it's that same expectation or that same approach or that same assumption as you. Um, so that it can be very easy for them to forget that they need to meet their staff, their, their team members where they're, where the, the, the team member is at. Um, you know, a lot of times managers will, you know, they'll say, that, you know, you, you say, well, have you told them that? Yes, I said it to them five times. And did you change the message? Did you change the approach in how you told them the five times? No. And you're going, right. So you think telling them the third time is going to make a difference when they didn't get it the first time. Yeah. Um, don't think so. Um, so, so that, you know, they kind of go, oh, right. So, you know, I would always be saying to a manager, you need to try different ways. You need to try different approaches. You need to try different messages. You need to try, you know, just kind of going, well, I told them five times in the exact same way with the exact same words and it didn't work the first time, but I really thought it would work the fifth. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. like, really, did you think it would work? The <laughs> or are you just a bit frustrated <laughs> because you're not kind of meeting them where they're at? Yeah. Very but I do appreciate it is very difficult. So part of that's treating people the way they want to be treated. It's about understanding where they are at so that you can meet them where they're uh, at. And yeah, um, definition of insanity, right, is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. What all of that made me want to ask you, Ariel, is what role do you think emotional intelligence plays in that? Um it plays a huge role in it, uh, absolutely. Um, and I, I am qualified in emotional intelligence and it, it is a, a fascinating area. Um, and I love it because I love working with people with emotion, around the emotional intelligence because we can change our levels of emotional intelligence. Um, and you, sometimes when it's more personality-based, you get people go, well, that's just the way I am. So that's just it. There's nothing I can do about it. Whereas emotional intelligence, they don't get that get out clause. Um, you know, it's like, well, actually you can. But the, I suppose what emotional intelligence almost looks at is, is how aware you are. Like it obviously is the intelligence that we can gather about ourselves and others by, ta- by understanding the emotions. And well, if that emotion has been, has risen up in me, where is that coming from? Why would I be feeling that emotion? What has triggered that emotion? So it, the more emotionally aware we are, the more we are self-aware about our values, about our expectations, about our assumptions, about all of those things that we've already talked about. <laughs> because we can feel the emotions showing up. If we're really aware of it, we know, okay, I'm starting to get that, you know, I have a client who will talk about the red mist descending, you know, and, you know, it's like, well, where does it, how do you know it's starting to descend? (laughs) And what is the trigger? So understanding the cues in our body and and not just ignoring them, but going, I wonder what's going on there now. I wonder why I'm feeling that and start understanding it unravels the whole, well, that's that emotion. And what would be triggering that emotion? Well, that was that value or it was that expectation or it was that. And it just, that really to be truly emotionally aware we are aware of all of those things that play into us as a human. Just brilliant, Ariel. Um, when a lot of people think about emotional intelligence, they think about interpreting and reading the emotion of others. And that's part of it too, by the way, not, not to dismiss that. And you do need to do that. You need to uh, be able to practice empathy. You need to be able to uh, determine whether someone is in a good mindset on a given day because emotions, just like you, they will have um, emotions impact their decision-making ability and their ability to do their job. So you do need to be able to interpret the emotions of others. But I love that you jump straight to the self-awareness because that's the thing that I think is more impactful here. Uh, Both are important, but the emotional self-awareness and you're, you're picking up some really important things. Understand what your own emotional triggers are understand your own emotional state, acknowledge and understand that your own emotional state will impact your decision-making uh, ability unless you're aware of these things. And the, the final one, which is so important, is other people are reading your emotions. So if you want your team to be able to come to you with the right reasons to escalate a problem and not come to you in the other situations, 
What you don't want is that situation where people are going, oh, is the boss in a good mood today? Or what is their state today, right? So, so you need to be able to understand your emotional triggers. You need to be able to then process that and then particularly ex- externally and outwardly, you need to be able to control those situations and make sure that uh, you're not allowing it to externally or internally impact the way that you do your role. Any reflections on that? Yeah, I, I would add, um, you're, I mean, you're right, absolutely. There, it, the emotional intelligence is our ability to understand ourselves and others and to be able to read other people's emotions. Um, it is very difficult to read other people's emotions when we can't understand our own. So I suppose why I started with the, 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 the te- that knowledge is if I can do it for myself, one, I can manage my own emotions better and easier um, so I can remain more calm. Um, and I am almost I am also much more likely to be able to understand what might be going on for another person as a result. Uh, and interestingly, I always say, you, you know, when people talk about emotional intelligence and I know it's become more, I suppose, more um, mainstream. Um, but when you talk about emotional intelligence in the workplace, people are often thinking, oh, I don't want emotions in the workplace. I don't want that. That sort of, you know, they can feel that geez, everybody be leaking emotions all over the place. But in actual fact, and again, in my own personal experience, I am less emotional because I understand my emotional triggers and I can feel them. I can go, okay, there's something happening here. I wonder what that is. And I know my values and I know my expectations and I know all those things. So actually, because I, I know all of those, I'm faster and quicker able to um, get my, my responses under control. And so therefore, I am actually less emotionally expressive, if you like, um, through the, the nonverbals. Um, because I can better do that. But I can also see when other people are getting much more, I can go, okay, they're, you know, I can see what's going on for them. Um, and so you can give people the, 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 you can give them slack and go and look, oh, look, you know, now's not the right time or we'll come back to it or whatever. It's, you know, and so you're better able to, 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 I suppose, um, recognize that in other people. And so therefore you can, it, it has a more, it's, it certainly reduces the detrimental part of a potential impact on, on a relationship where one could row in and not recognize and damage the relationship unintentionally. You know, again, a lot of this is unintentional and we don't intend to do this, um, but you're able to kind of get, I'll just give them a bit of time. This isn't the right time. I'll give them a bit of space there and we'll come back to it when they're ready. Yeah, very good. I love that advice. And there's something in that for all of us, Ariel. Okay, that probably brings us uh, towards a close of our interview. I'd, I'd like to ask you some, some questions that we ask many of our guests, if I may. This one's going to be a great one for you as an author. Do you have a favorite book? I have two favorite books in terms of the business world. So obviously I'm a big Harry Potter fan. I'm a big, um, what is it, the Hunger Games, those Lord of the Rings. But in terms of business books, I have two. One is the leader, Leadership um, and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. And the other one is the Leadership Pipeline by uh, Ram Charon. And there's a couple of other guys. Uh, they, the three of them wrote it. Um, and they are just really amazing books in this leadership space. 
um, the urban, the leadership and self-deception is all around ourselves and our mind, our, our beliefs and our worldviews and, and th- those, the, 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 that internal piece of us uh, on ourselves and how that impacts on, on how we show up and how we behave with other people and act with other people. And then the Leadership Pipeline is an incredible book in terms of the mindset shift that needs to happen as we move up through different stages of management. So going from individual contributor to first line manager to middle manager to you know senior manager to head of function to CEO. Um, so they're they're probably both around the mindset piece, um, but from very different perspectives. And I, I'd say they're obviously my own books. I recommend as often as I can but of course um, but those would be the two that I'd be going yeah you need this book excellent uh, do you have a favorite quote um I think one of my absolute driving quotes for me is give a man a fish give a man a fish he'll feed him for a day teach a man to fish feed him for life that underpins the manager's dilemma right there yeah, very good okay and uh, here's an interesting one. Who do you think we should interview next on the Leadership Project? Oh, well, there is a very, very good question. Um, I don't know if you've come across the book Millennials um, Poised to Lead by Mona Shah, but that's an excellent book for um, millennials. I read the book last year and I... I actually, there were times I had to put the book down and stop reading it because it sparked so many ideas for me. It was like, okay, my brain is starting to explode here. <laughs> I have to put this book down. But it's a fascinating, absolutely and utterly fascinating insight into what shapes, what has shaped the millennials um, and how they show up. It's uh, um, really, really interesting if, for millennials themselves. Um, you know, it's stuff like even one of the things was that they've grown up with that likes and all of that and this public acceptance or public. So if you start trying to give them feedback or, you know, it can be very uncomfortable for them because they're so used to to this public, everybody looking. And that has a facet, you know, that has to have a fascinating impact on your psyche. So just Incredible, incredible. Okay, Mona, we'll be in contact soon to get you on the show. <laughs> Very good. Um, final one, uh, or two final ones, sorry. Uh, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? I wish I had known about values. Values. Mm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. very good. And final one, uh, I'm sure um, just like myself, many people are going to be getting wonderful lessons out of today's interview if someone wants to know more, want to get hold of uh, a copy of uh, the new book or the backlog, um, how do they get in contact with you, Ariel? So the books are available on Amazon, so Kindle, uh, paperback. Um, so they're available amazon.co.uk.com.com.au. Um, they are also available from my website, and my website is uh, evolutionconsulting.ie. Um, and you can reach out to me on evolutionconsulting.ie, LinkedIn, of course, um, active there, and um, uh, Facebook, Evolution Consulting, and also Ariel O'Farrell Books. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Ariel. As mentioned, I, I learned so much today. I learned so much reading your book. It's even better bringing it to life. 
and chatting to you today and able to have this privilege of asking you questions that spurned in my mind when I was reading the book. So absolutely wonderful. I learned so much. I know our audience would learn a lot from today's uh, interview and from reading your book. We will be putting those details in the show notes so that people can find it themselves as well. So thank you so much, Errol. It's been a true pleasure and a great honour to have you on the show. Likewise, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nick. You've been listening to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears. Join us each week as we bring you more thought-provoking guests. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you are informed of all future episodes. If you are enjoying the show, it would be greatly appreciated if you can leave us a review and tell your friends about us. You are also welcome to join the Leadership Project Facebook community group where we have an active conversation going about all things leadership. Please do take care, look out for each other and always remember to challenge the status quo. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calibo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.